This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Welcome to what is the third message of uh, a total of six in the series that we're doing at Nags Head Church here in the first part of the year in January on the vision that God's given us here at Nags Head Church. And if you are a guest, um, this is a great time to be checking us out because we're talking about the nuts and bolts of what, we, what we're doing here as a church. And uh, if you're a partner already, as one of our longtime partners told me at the end of the last gathering, she said it was so great to be reminded of some of those things. And we need to be reminded because as I spoke of uh, on the first Sunday a couple of weeks ago about vision, and I used the illustration of the helium balloon, vision leaks. And if we aren't regularly reminded about what it is that we're supposed to do. A lot of times we forget and, and, and we can't carry out the purposes that God has for us. And before we can really do that, we have to understand why do we do the things that we do. And so that's what this, um, this series is about. So if you've got a Bible, you can be looking up 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the scriptures there in your notes and uh, the reference. We're going to be there in just a few minutes. You came in and found this morning to some of your great pleasure a Tootsie Roll pop or a Tootsie Roll on your seat. And, uh, and, and that's for you to enjoy any time that you would like to. And uh, we encourage you to just, just go right ahead and, and at your leisure uh, do that. I would also encourage you that the pockets in the back of the seats are not trash receptacles, all right? So, nor is the floor, all right? So, Tootsie Roll. Tootsie Roll was created in 1896. There's only a couple, a couple people here that maybe can remember 1896. Just kidding. Tootsie Roll was created in 1896, and here's the amazing thing about Tootsie Roll. It is still made with the exact same original recipe that it was first, the first Tootsie Roll that was made was tasted and looked. Well, it looked a little bit different, but tasted and uh, chewed exactly like the one that you have. That's an amazing thing. In fact, here was something interesting. I did a lot of research this week about Tootsie Roll. Here's something interesting I discovered about Tootsie Roll that I did not know. That the recipe uh, that, was, that was originated in 1896 calls for every day when the factory, and they make millions and millions and millions of Tootsie Rolls every day, but it calls for them to, to save some of yesterday's batch what's left over from yesterday, and start today's batch with what was left over from yesterday, kind of like you do maybe with like a sourdough bread or something. But they, they do that, and they, they save some from yesterday, and that's what they begin today's batch with. And they've done that every day that they've made Tootsie Rolls for 115 years, which means this about Tootsie Roll. If you stop and think about it, there could be a little tiny bit of the original Tootsie Roll in that Tootsie Roll that's on your seat or that's in your mouth right now. Could be, theoretically. But what it does mean this is that there is an unbroken chain from the very first Tootsie Roll to this one. Unbroken, exactly the same recipe. Nothing's changed on the inside. But, you know what has changed over the years? The wrapper, the size. The wrapper's undergone number, a number of changes over these 115 years. In fact, I really tried hard. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, you could go to the store and up at, you know, you could find a Tootsie Roll that was about that long. 
you know? Cost a nickel, I think. Remember those days? Steve, Brenda doesn't remember, but I know you do, all right? It was about that long. You could get about, and it, was, and it had about six different pieces in it. You remember those? I looked everywhere for those. They don't have them anymore, at least not on the Outer Banks that I could find. I didn't go to any candy stores, but all, I went in all the went to drug stores and Walmart and Kmart. I've been shopping for Tootsie Rolls this past week. But I could find a gazillion of these. Also could find Tootsie Roll Pop. Some of you on your seat, you were lucky. You got a Tootsie Roll Pop. They were created in 1931 and were a big hit during the Depression because they were so inexpensive. Probably they were a penny or two cents or something. I can remember buying them as a kid for two cents, I think. And uh, they were real popular. Tootsie Roll. Nothing on the insides changed. Wrapper, packaging, outside has undergone numerous changes over the last 115 years. We've been talking the last couple weeks about our vision here at Nags Head Church. And our vision says, if you take our whole vision statement, five points to it, it essentially, if we could summarize it, it says, here's what we're supposed to be and supposed to be becoming as a church. And we need reminding. Remember, I used the illustration of like a helium-filled balloon. Vision leaks. And after a few days, that balloon starts descending. And, and, and you watch it very long, and finally it's just laying on the floor. We run out of gas, if we're not reminded, if we're not repumped, if we're not, if we're not reminded and refreshed about what our vision is, we run out of gas and our tendency is, our human tendency is to revert to the past, to go back to what we used to know rather than to vision look, makes me look forward. You probably noticed that, those, especially if you, those of you are guests, that we are intentionally non-traditional here at Nagshead Church. I said the first Sunday a couple weeks ago, that's not because being traditional is a bad thing. It isn't. But we're not traditional here because it's not the vision of being traditional. That's not what God's given us here as a vision for our church. And so maybe you're wondering, why is it important to be relevant in our methods of ministry? Or better yet, better question is this, what biblical basis do we have for being contemporary? So you found 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to follow along with me while I read verses 19 through 23. And if you didn't pull a Bible out, the verses will be up on the screen for you. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, even though I am a free man with no master. You get, remember now, they lived in a culture where there was slave, slavery. He said, I'm a free man. I have no master. I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law, even though I am not subject to the law. I don't have to, but I've chosen to do this. I did this, why? So that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. I want you to just think about as he goes through this, how many times he says, and this is why I do this, so I can bring other people to Christ. Kind of note that. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything, Paul said, to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Now, I admire the Apostle Paul. He is one of my 
greatest heroes. When I, when I read the Bible and I think about the men and the women in the Bible, Paul's right there at the top of the list of people that I admire, that I want to say, God, if I could have his passion, if I could have his clarity, if I could have his ability to communicate, if I could have his zeal for the gospel and for people who don't know Jesus, if I could have his courage, Paul's one of my heroes. Here was a man who was brought up in the strictest sect of Judaism, Phariseeism. It was, they were the, the Pharisees were the hyper-conservative, extreme fundamentalists of their religion. No one in Judaism could match their adherence to a combination of the law, the Old Testament law, and on top of that, a lot of traditions that they had created to go along with the law. But as a result of all those traditions and a result of their strict adherence, here comes along Jesus, and if you know the Gospels, and you know Jesus' story, Jesus had a bunch of run-ins with these guys, didn't he? I mean, it was kind of like all the time there were confrontations between the Pharisees and Jesus. They, they protested, for example, when he healed somebody on the Sabbath day because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day and you healed this man. That, that, you're a healer by trade, right? Yeah, well, then you've worked and you've broken God's law. You've healed a man. They, they protested that. They criticized his disciples because... They watched them before they sat down to eat, and his disciples didn't ceremonially wash their hands before eating. They called Jesus a sinner because he dared to sit down with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and drunkards and, and sit down at a table and eat with them and get to know them and, and dine with them because he went into the homes of unbelievers like Zacchaeus. They called him a sinner. And we don't know that Paul actually ever saw Jesus while Jesus was alive before the crucifixion and the resurrection. We don't know that, but we do know that Paul belonged to this group called the Pharisees. And then something amazing happened to Paul. He, he was on, uh, on a trip to the city of Damascus uh, to arrest Christians. He, his whole purpose in life was to destroy Christianity. He's on a trip to the city of Damascus to arrest and bring Christians to trial, and, and, and something happened to him. He met Christ on the road to Damascus, and as a result of his meeting Christ, Paul's life was totally transformed, and he became Christianity's greatest missionary. He became Christianity's greatest church leader. He became Christianity's greatest writer in the first century. He dared to leave his own culture of, of Pharisaical Judaism and preach the gospel to other ethnic groups and lead them to start new churches across Asia Minor and, and there along the Mediterranean coast of southern Europe. He often risked his life to do so. He, he went to prison numerous times for preaching. But because his life had been so radically changed by Christ, and that's what Jesus does when he enters a life, he changes us from the inside out. Because his life had been so radically changed by Christ, Paul then took on a strategy, and his strategy was very simply this, whatever it takes. And that's what he just said in that passage we just read. I will do whatever it takes. I will become whatever I need to become in order to reach people for Christ. He took a whatever-it-takes strategy for reaching people for Jesus. He was not afraid to adapt. He wasn't afraid to improvise. And here in this letter to the Corinthians, he explains that strategy. 
He says, here's what I do wherever I go, whether I go into a Jewish community, a Gentile community, makes no difference. Whether they know God or they're total pagans, makes no difference. Here's what I do whatever, wherever I go. He said, first of all, I am not afraid to change if that's what's needed. If that's what it takes, count on me. I'll change. He said, I'll identify with the culture I'm in to share Christ with them. I'll identify with that culture. Uh, some people said, how come you dress like that today? You know, I mean, you, I don't normally wear cowboy boots and, uh, and a Western belt. And, 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 and I, I'm, if those of you are really sticklers about attire, I, I want you to know I'm doing something that's really a no-no. I'm, I'm wearing a pair of Levi jeans and a Wrangler shirt. You know, I'm kind of mixing brands there. But I'm, I'm being fair to everybody, Okay. Why are you dressed like that? If, here's, here's the deal. If we, if we could take ourselves and transplant our church to Wyoming or Montana or New Mexico, how do you think people out there dress? You know how I would be dressing if I was in a church out there? Howdy, partner. Somebody said to me, look down, he says, you got the boots? He says, you need the bowed legs? I said, God gave me those. Okay, I mean, I, I got those. That's not a problem. How would you dress? I, I remember when, when, uh, when Gail and I, uh, when we, we left Southern California, which is a, a culture of its own, and, and God moved us to serve in a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, another culture of its own. And I remember as our plane from L.A. flew in and landed in Oklahoma City, and then we got another plane to, to Tulsa. But I remember as we landed and we got to the airport, Gail's comment was this. There's nobody here but cowboys and Indians. <laughs> we weren't in Kansas anymore. Well, we're close to Kansas, but we, you know, it was a very, very different culture than what we were used to. Paul said, I'll identify with the culture I'm in to share Christ with him. And that's why I admire him so. Here was a man that came out of a culture that was so steeped in tradition and believed change was, and in his former life, he be, they believed change was sinful. Here's a man who was radically changed himself. Paul was willing to concede his upbringing and his tradition if he could do so without compromising the truth in order to bring souls to Christ. He taught his young protege, a guy named Timothy, to do the same thing. Timothy was a young man brought up by a Jewish mother and grandmother whose Timothy's father was Greek. Timothy had never been, because his dad was a Greek, Timothy and his parent and mother was Jewish. Timothy had never been circumcised as all Jewish boys were. But then he teams up with Paul as a young adult, and Paul tells him, listen, Timothy, our mission right now, the mission that God's given us is to reach the Jews with the gospel. But if they find out you've never been circumcised, and I'll stop right there and say I'm not sure and really don't want to speculate how they would find that out. Okay, I don't want to go there. But if they ever find out that you're not circumcised, here's the deal. They won't listen to you. They'll just turn you off because you're uncircumcised. You're pagan as far as they're concerned. They won't hear a word you have to say. That's the way they are. So, Timothy, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to team up with me, and we're going to go preach the gospel of the Jews. You have to get circumcised so the Jews will listen to us talk about Jesus. And we think we've made some major changes to communicate Christ. You know, we took off our ties and went, wow. Timothy, you have to be circumcised. You put yourself in Timothy's place, guys. 
You've lived just fine so far without circumcision. You've believed in God since you were a young child, and you heard the gospel of Jesus, and when you heard that gospel of Jesus, you accepted him as your Savior, and, and you were told then the gospel's not about those old laws and traditions. That's not what it's about, about circumcision. There's never an issue. But now, now in order to fulfill the mission that God's called you to do, you're being told you've got to change. And Timothy could have taken the attitude. I'm not changing. But he didn't take that attitude. And I think that proves Timothy wasn't a Baptist. But he didn't take that attitude because Timothy understood it's not about me. Did you get that? He understood it's not about me and it's not about my comfort. Something greater was at stake and that greater thing was for him to gain an audience with the culture that otherwise would reject him. And the amazing thing is that this young man agreed to it. And he changed in order to reach that culture without compromising his beliefs. He didn't add and say, okay, and then to be a Christian now, you've got to do this. He knew that wasn't the case. Without compromising his beliefs, he adapted to their culture. And I look at that story, and I look at Paul's story, and I say, those guys were pretty extreme That's pretty radical to do that. That's uncomfortable, isn't it, Timothy? Oh, yeah. But Paul and Timothy said this. We will put our traditions aside. We will leave our comfort zones to communicate with different cultures. If you're here this morning here at Nagstead Church, what I want to communicate with you is this. Our vision as a church says we will too. We're about the same thing, Paul and Timothy. What is the scripture? What does Paul teach us in that passage there in in 1 Corinthians? Number one is this. Christianity is transcultural. Transcultural. There There are other cultural differences, other cultures right here in eastern North Carolina, aren't there? You cross the bridge and you go to the mainland, you're in a different culture over there. Then you are even right here. You go across the bridge and go south to Hatteras, you're in a different culture there than we are right here on the beach. Many cultures are defined by age, and, and, and many cultures are defined by, by things like musical or, or, or pastime preferences. And you know where you go find those cultures? If you want to do some research, and I'm not encouraging you to do this, but you know where you, you can go and find those subcultures in every community? Do you know where the places are where they gather? Somebody tell me. In the bars. In the bars. And you can go around and you can, and I'm not encouraging, please don't say, the preacher told me to go bar hopping this week. I, I didn't say that. But bars are cultural hangouts. Bars are places where cultures congregate. And so there you have redneck bars and, and you have gay bars and you have surfer bars and you have sports bars and you have biker bars. And you walk in and if you're not a part of that particular culture, you really feel out of place. Those are all, by the way, subcultures within our community. But there's something that every culture, doesn't matter what culture it is, southern, northern, biker, surfer, doesn't matter what the culture is, there is something that every culture has in common. There's something that every culture needs. And you know what that is? The need to know Christ. Every culture needs to know Jesus. Doesn't matter what they look like or what color they are or where they've come from what language they speak, what their educational background. 
They need to know that Jesus loves them and Jesus died for them and wants to include them in his family. But in order for them to hear that message, what has to happen? Somebody's got to reach them. Somebody's got to do that. That's where Nag said church comes into the picture. Our purpose, you know our purpose statement if you're a partner in our church, our purpose is to reach people to discover life in Christ. And then you have to ask the question, well, what people? And the answer is all people. We're to reach people to discover life in Christ. And we don't segregate and we don't discriminate. We say all people, all people, however, is not specific. And a couple weeks ago, I said vision needs to be a specific thing. All people is just kind of really general. You know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that's like saying we believe all the Bible, and we do. But let's bring it down like like that song we sang in the beginning. It says, here are the things that we believe that make up our faith, and it all comes from Scripture. It's what the Bible's all about. Sums it up. Specific. All people is really general. So imagine in your mind, if you will, a a target, uh, um, you know, like like you're shooting arrows at, throwing darts at, a dartboard kind of a thing, a target that you mount up on the wall. And in the center of that, that target is, is, the, is the, you know, you've got, you got these concentric rings around it, large on the outside, that get smaller around the inside, till you get to the center one, and usually it's a solid color, and it's called the bullseye. The bullseye, the target with all the rings, represents our entire community. We could say the entire world. The bullseye, however, gets really specific and says to our church, this is who we're out to reach. For us, we decided a number of years ago at Nags Head Church that our bullseye, we got this target of our whole community and we want to reach our whole community, but our bullseye was going to be 30-something young adults and young families. We might call them today, if you want to give them a name, we'll call them Nags Head, Nick and Nita. That's who they are. They're 30-something years old, got a couple kids, you know, got, bought their first home, trying really hard, working a couple jobs to make ends meet, you know, doing everything they can to struggle to survive in this, in this economy, in this culture. Around the 30-somethings, then you have, you know, you have the other circles that go around them, and then those circles might be, you know, teenagers and young singles and, and middle-aged folks and mature singles and and then senior adults and they're all around they're all in our target we're out to reach all of them but our bullseye those that god said in our vision this is who we want you to meet to to reach those we believe god want us to focus our outreach on were young families why did you do that what what why, why reach young families? And the answer really was, it was a no-brainer. It was simple. You know what the answer was back in, you know, 15 years ago or so when we said, God, this is who you want us to reach as a church? The answer was very simply this, because no other churches down here are doing it. If you took a poll and went around to all the churches on the Outer Banks, you would go in and everybody in church had hair my color, the color that it is now, not 15 years ago, but what it looks like now. And yet we had all of this, an entire generation of young adults that sensed, for whatever reason, right or wrong, that church was a thing of the past. So we had to ask the question, okay, why don't young families come to church? Why isn't our church overflowing with them? How can we recapture a generation that Jesus died for? How can we effectively communicate the gospel to them? And the answer was Paul's strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. A couple of years ago, we asked a couple of our old-timers here. We've been around a while. 
about the changes they saw in Nags Head Church. I want you to listen to their story. Well, it's bigger now, which is a good thing. Uh, we have more people that are coming. We changed in uh, doing things around here, but uh, the message is the same. And uh, so the change that I see um, mostly is because the church is a lot bigger now. When we came here, what was it, 12, 15? The tops 20 people in our mm-hmm. congregation and church service. And another thing, too, was lost a necktie. Don't have to wear the necktie. <laughs> I can wear it, but you, know, don't, you don't really have to wear it. From this hymn book, I can hear. Through talking, you know, someone asked me what church I was from, and I told them what church I was from, and they said, oh, that's a church for the old people. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, maybe it was, but it's a church for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the children came and... But it was uh, the biggest change is uh, the youth. Well, the music, but I've heard a lot of people say they they like the traditional, but I guess I'm just odd because I love the praise and worship. I love that. And uh, that change really was ha- that really made me happy. Well, one of the big changes I saw, and uh, right away it upset me, taking the pews out of the church, that's like taking hot dog away from baseball. But I had to come back and apologize. Those chairs are a lot more comfortable than those pews. And that's one thing I, I love about our church is because the word is being preached. That's the way I feel that it, 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 it uh, the message has not changed. No, you're, you're right there. This is where I believe that God wants me. It's the love of the Lord, you know, and uh, the people I met here are sincere. I hate to say it, but this is not the way we've done it up north. So what? It's just it's a lot better. No. No, I never, no. I never did. Not, not the way, like I hate to say it, but us four no more. That, that was the kind of the med- mentality, you know. Uh, um, there was people that didn't want a bunch of children here when I started the bus ministry. There was people that did not want those children here. They thought they were too much trouble. It's all worked out. Yes. I'd, I would have never believed that we'd have this big, beautiful church. And and uh, the things that goes, it's just totally God. It's totally Him. And anything's possible. We found out right here now today what we're witnessing right here. Right. The, the little, uh, the little white church by the ocean is not uh, not here anymore, you know. But the people are here. Sun's dust and ashes. I'm not
Number two, the package is adaptable and changes often. The package is adaptable and changes often. Did you know that Sunday school, most of us grew up with Sunday school, uh, did you know that Sunday school wasn't invented until the church was nearly 1,800 years old? For 1,800s, there were 1,800 years, there was no such thing. And then it was created in England in the late 1700s as an outreach to help children, a subculture of children who worked in the factories six days a week and could not go to school. And so a, a fellow by the name of Robert Rake said, let's gather these children on Sundays, the only day they have off, and let's teach them to read, and we'll use the Bible to do it. And that's why Sunday school was created, was to teach kids who could not go to school to read. But, you know, there's some people, I bet, that think Jesus started Sunday school in this first century. I know it's in the Bible somewhere. It's not. And who decided what a church building was supposed to look like? Did, did Jesus sit down with the apostles, you know, before he sent them out into the world and say, hey, guys, I got these blueprints, and, and here's what a church building is supposed to look like. You know, you got to have these stained glass windows, and you have to have these steeples. No. There's no church building. Church buildings were built according to local cultural styles. Adapting to culture, as Paul did, is why we do at Nags Head Church, why we do church the way we do here. Our music is geared toward our bullseye, toward our target group. I heard the story of a church that was making the transition from traditional church music, you know, with the, the organ and the piano and the robed choir and so forth, and they were making a transition from that to contemporary music. And, and believe it or not, not everyone was happy about it. One older, older gentleman came to the pastor and he said, Pastor, he, he said the uh, complaint that was typical of his generation, Pastor, it's just too loud. By the way, you ever been to Grandma's house when she's watching TV? <laughs> Grandma, would you please turn that thing down? You know. All the young people laugh because they know what I'm talking about. And so to help him get the vision, this pastor, with, he, with great godly wisdom, said to that godly senior adult man, hey, listen, would you like to see your grandkids come to church? You see, this, this brother's grandchildren were young adults, and they had left the church and feeling the church no longer related to them. And the pastor said to him, I want you to trust me with this. This music will attract your grandkids and their friends. And it did. Maybe the best part of the story is that this older man, it was like God opened his eyes to the vision of the church. He got it. And suddenly the vision made sense to him, and, and it even created a new ministry for him. And so each Sunday from then on, he said, I got an idea for those in my crowd those of us that think it's too loud. And every Sunday, this gentleman stood outside the church doors with a bag of cotton balls. And he said, if it's too loud, take a cotton ball. And uh, by the way, um, if anybody wants a ministry, I've got a bag of cotton balls here for you, all right? And he passed those out, and some of the folks, I think, including him, would put the cotton balls in their ears so it wasn't quite so loud. And they sat there during the worship gathering with their cotton balls in their ears, and they smiled, not only because the cotton balls helped with the music, but they were smiling because they looked around the church and saw it filling, it, filling up with their grandchildren's generation. 
Adapting to our, our, our generation, our culture, is why our building looks like it does. It's why we make great use of technology in our worship and how we communicate through the Internet. It's why we have a secure check-in system here for our children. That's all culture-driven. We don't live in the good old days anymore when our children were safe anywhere we dropped them off. It's why we dress casually. It's why we have surfboards hanging up in our lobby. It's why we use modern English Bibles, because no one speaketh or understandeth Elizabethan English anymore except for a few actors on Roanoke Island. It's about being relevant. As Paul wrote, our vision compels us as a church to find, as he said, common ground. Change the packaging, Paul said, if necessary, Find common ground with this culture so that we might do what? Bring them to Christ. But even if the methods change, and the methods do change constantly around here, number three, the message never does. The the message never changes. You heard that in the video. And that's one thing that for us as a church doesn't change, our message. It's not up for debate. There can be no compromise on this because our message is the foundation for everything we do. As I said last Sunday in church, we are Bible believers here. From cover to cover, we believe that the Bible, we believe this book is the inspired word of God. We believe it's perfect. And the men who wrote these books, the Bible is actually a a library, if you will, of 66 separate books combined into one. The men who wrote the words in in these letters and these books wrote as the Holy Spirit gave them direction. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says very simply, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration comes from a Greek word that means God breathed it into them. We believe that completely, and that makes us, because we believe an ancient book that was written, the most modern, the most recent of the, of the, the books in this Bible are 2,000 years old, and many are much, much older than that, 4,000 years old, some of them. That makes us very, very old-fashioned in our beliefs. And we also believe and understand that those old-fashioned beliefs are not the most politically correct in our culture today to look at things. But we live in a culture that is willing to throw away biblical morals, but we can't because we know the Bible is God's eternal word. It's the most relevant and timeless message in the world. We don't have to do anything to the Bible to make it relevant. It works. It works. This also means that we believe that there is only one way to know God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ, that God's way of saving mankind is the same today as it was the day Jesus died on the cross. And if you believe the Bible, you also must believe that there is only one way, and that's through faith in Christ. And he made it very clear when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The challenge that that presents us, you can imagine. Here we are, church, and again, picture the Tootsie Roll. We've got the, the original message that never changes. The recipe has never altered one bit. But the package is changing constantly and how it's presented and how it's shared. And the challenge that we as Nags Head Church are faced with all the time is how do we stay relevant in how we present Christ to the world and at the same time not compromise in our ancient old-fashioned beliefs? But we need to understand this church, and this is part of what we, who we are. We believe 
from what Paul said, God did not dictate methods. God didn't say you have to do it this way in every regard. He didn't. He said, I want you to have communion. He didn't say necessarily how to do it. Sometimes we have a table in the center of the room. Sometimes a table's at the front. Sometimes we have communion. We ask you to come up to the tables and, and gather around and pray together as groups. Sometimes we have communion in our connection groups. He didn't say necessarily you've got to do it a certain way. He said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. That's one example. He didn't say what instruments you can sing with and what you can't. I think a lot of people, boy, they just kind of, they, they think the drums and the guitars, there's something wrong with that. And when they get to heaven, they're going to have a rude awakening. The Psalms talk about using those instruments and praising God. I don't know about a harmonica, George, but, but I, you know, God didn't dictate methods. That's what Paul's to the words Words to the Corinthians we read at the beginning this morning said, it's not about buildings, it's not about programs, it's not about style, and it can't be about our preference, because Paul's preference was to be very traditional and very conservative. God's given us instead great freedom in using modern methods that work with this culture, and it's happening upstairs with our children, it happens in here, it happens in about everything that we do. And because we are committed as a church to reaching this community, especially younger people, especially those in our bullseye, if you will, we're going to communicate, we're going to present the gospel in their language and in a fashion they understand because the fact of the matter is without them, the church dies. Without them, I, I, I spoke in a church back in the fall, an hour away from here, a little more than an hour away from here. And, and sat down with them and said, you all know, you all, you all realize, about 40 people, that, you, that your church is about, at the most, 20 years from being gone. I was there as the preacher, and I was the youngest guy there. I said, you're, and that's the way Nags Head Church was not too many years ago. Without these young people, the church dies. My generation, I'm a baby boomer, my generation mostly believed that the church was for old people, and as a result, my generation abandoned the church. But I'm thankful that there were some pastors in my generation who weren't afraid to make changes, who woke up and realized that we don't need to compromise what we believe. We don't have to change our beliefs. We don't have to water down the truth, but we can and we must repackage it so that this generation and and my granddaughter's generation and on down the line so that those generations will at least stop and give a listen. And we're committed here to change the package however often it's needed, but to never change the message of God's word. That's our vision. So what should we expect? Well, we should expect changes in methods around here and regularly. Expect changes in methods and regularly. Why? Because we use the word contemporary. What does the word contemporary mean? It means up to date. Well, what's contemporary today is going to be old-fashioned tomorrow. So we're going to change our methods around here regularly. That's scary to me and those of us who are getting older, but to be this kind of church means we have to have an environment of change and an environment of flexibility. You can expect our elders, our pastors here, to strictly guard what's taught here. We take that responsibility very seriously. That's why we require our connection groups. 
and our Bible studies to stay within the boundaries of doctrine that our church believes, our pastor's responsibility. When I say pastors, I'm not talking about me. Our pastors, we have five. Our responsibility is to guard our flock and our beliefs for our protection against false doctrine. So how do we respond to that vision? What do we do? Real quickly, four things. How do we respond to that as a church? Number one, we're always looking for new ways to present the gospel, the good news. We're always looking for, for a new way to do it. I've got some things in the back of my mind that if I shared with you, some of you would get real scared. Some of you will think he has lost his mind. We're always looking for new ways to present the good news. How do we respond to that vision? Number two, well, what's contemporary today will be old in a generation. We need to understand that. And that's where the church got lost. A church in our, in our association here, we, we belong to an association of Baptist churches, about 65 churches, and, and one of those churches um, had a fire about three or four years ago and burned the church to the ground. The church building had been there since the 1850s, 60s, 70s. It was well over 100 years old. Burned to the ground. And when I heard that, I thought, that's sad, but that gives them an opportunity now to do something new and culturally relevant to their community. You know what they did? With the exception of installing bathrooms with plumbing and air conditioning and heating, they built the exact same building back. It's not about building, though, but that's part of how we communicate to our community. What's contemporary today will be older generation. I fully expect my grandkids' generation, 50 years from now, to look at this building and say, you know what? Grandpa did it. Let's do it. And to tear it down and build something new that works. And, and you know what? I'm not going to cry about that. I'll think, man, that's awesome. That indicates they're still, they still have the vision. They still know what we're about. We're not about worshiping a facility. We're about reaching a community for Christ. A third thing, how do we respond to that vision? What's contemporary today will be old in the generation. Number three, if our beliefs change, our foundation crumbles. If our beliefs change, our foundation crumbles. We are built upon this book and what it says. And so we guard that and we protect that and we, we fight for that. That's how we respond to that vision. Number four, but if our methods don't change, our foundation becomes an archaeological dig. Nobody knows what the foundation or where it is or how to find it anymore. If our methods don't change. I want you to take a look at the question at the end of your notes. And it asks this. Our band's coming up. I want you guys to come on up. It asks this. What will I do this year? I can't answer this for you. This is something you have to ask for yourself. What will I do this year to join my church in fulfilling our vision? What will I do? And there's some things that you can respond to, and there's some places for you to respond. And as you listen to this song, I want you to, to, uh, I want you to think about that. What can I do this year to help my church fulfill this part of our vision, this part that says we are contemporary in our methods, but we are unchanging in our message. And then write down your response.
This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.